maybe this isn't your line of work, but someone um, should start up the new Fletcher School minor in bribing foreign <laughs> countries. I think that's, you know, to build up the subject matter expertise here, I think is something that um, uh, is really lacking in the U.S. arsenal. Yeah, good, good luck getting donations to that. Oh, easy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is like a super easy fundraising activity. What, what corporation would not want to get into this game? So, full disclosure, the report we'll be discussing today is a culmination of a CNAS research project supported by funding from the government of Japan. The government of Norway also arranged a study tour, which I'm very jealous you guys got to go on. So, um, in a blog post a few years ago, Scholar Stage, aka Peter Greer, wrote that U.S. Sino relations do not occur in a vacuum. By design, Washington's political and military relationship with Beijing is filtered through an East Asian alliance system built at great cost by American soldiers and statesmen. The hub of this system is Japan. Because of this, America cannot have a purely bilateral relationship with China. The road to Beijing runs through Tokyo. America's challenge in the early years of the 21st century is to manage this trilateral relationship. No one talks about how critical the U.S.-Japanese relationship is to the 21st century, nor how it will be key to preserving global peace and stability. The lack of attention Americans pay to Japanese affairs is troublesome, and in the long run, it may prove disastrous. So I know everyone likes to talk tech all the time, and we will get to that, but I think it's important to start this conversation by talking about the broader U.S.-Japan alliance and put it in its strategic context. Dan, Christine, and Josh, welcome to China Talk. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Dan, I want to start and back up to a book you wrote in 2014 called Fateful Transitions, um, which was talking about how democracies manage rising powers. And first, I want to focus a little bit on how Japan, a democracy, reflected and processed China's 20th century rise. So what, what from... I don't know when you when you wrote the draft of this chapter, but what from seven, eight years ago, I guess, sticks out to you about, you know, maybe how Japan has has processed China's rise versus how America has been over the past uh, few decades. Absolutely. Well, first, I'm I'm pretty flattered that you pulled up my book. It's it's been a long time <laughs> since I wrote it. I, I would say I was it was pretty happy that the analysis, I think, still very much is evergreen. And Japan's approach at the time when I wrote the book certainly continued beyond. So just to, to kind of go back to the beginning, looking at the Japan piece, I looked at essentially how Japan was responding to China's rise. And the kind of key start of that was the late 1990s when policymakers in Japan began to understand that China would eclipse Tokyo economically and in the military domain, certainly in the maritime domain as well. And so really from the outset, Japan was trying to, what I called in the book, both Integrate, which was trying to kind of constrain China through participation in international institutions and also hedge. So strengthening the, the uh, U.S.-Japan alliance, building up Japan's own military capabilities and strengthening ties between Japan and other regional countries. And so really from kind of the late 1990s to the present, we've seen successive Japanese administrations continue that approach. What it has changed, especially since I wrote the book, I would say is the relative emphasis where uh, really, even until 2014, I would say there was a fairly equal balance between integration and hedging. And today, it's much more hedging with a lot lighter integration. I just want to recommend Ezra Fogel's new uh, book about the Japan-China relationship. I thought in particular, you know, there, there are like great chapters on the Song Dynasty and whatnot. But the the thing I felt like I learned the most was 
in the early, you know, just as Gaga Kaifan was starting, as Reform and Opening was 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 getting kicked off, it seemed like Japan was really leaning into the integration side of this equation. There's there's a bit of, I guess, like guilt that was running through the Japanese system, but also, you know, it, they felt like they really had a lot to teach and were 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 really rooting for China to 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 pull out of the malaise of the of the, of the Mao era. So to watch it, um, watch watch China go from this, you know, big brother country that seemingly had everything figured out in the 70s and 80s to all of a sudden really having to contend with a rising power that will you know eclipse it at some point in the future is a, is a really remarkable turn of events in, in just a handful of decades. In terms of sort of how Japan's thought about China, I mean, there, there's huge, I would say, divide between kind of the, the post-Mao era really running into the mid-90s and then after. And I mean, we forget, but for Japan, I mean, the primary security threat until the late 1980s was the Soviet Union. There was a Cold War in East Asia. Japan was very concerned about a potential Soviet invasion of Hokkaido, its northern island. And so there really wasn't a kind of security dimension or certainly competitive security aspect to the Japan-China relationship until you enter the, the 90s and really the mid to late 1990s. So definitely have a huge pivot for Japan from trying to sort of see China as a country that it was trying to help in part because that served a broader balance against the Soviet Union to being the kind of primary regional competitor to Japan. So for some some broad generalizations, where do you think is a Japanese elite public opinion today on the trilateral relationship? I think it's it's quite telling when you look at Japanese public views of China. Um, and so, for example, in the report that we'll discuss later today, Forging an Alliance Innovation Base, we look at public perceptions of China in various countries. In Japan, 85%. This was a poll from 2019 by Pew, had an unfavorable view of China. It's interesting that was 85% unfavorable views of China in Japan, 60% in the US, uh, and then 50% in Australia. So Japan, far more kind of unfavorable views of China than kind of any other major country. Uh, so in that sense, I think I, if you look at polls of the US, tends to be consistently very high. I haven't seen the, the latest version but overall, I mean, you can see public opinion is very skeptical of China. Another dimension to to complicate our trilateral relationship is, of course, the Japan-South Korea tensions. So what role does China aggression play in moderating or impacting the the other trilateral relationship between the U.S., uh, Japan, and South Korea. So I think you're you're right that greater convergence in threat perceptions of China. And also North Korea, to a certain extent, could lend itself to opening new avenues of dialogue between uh, Japan and South Korea. And I think especially in the midst and the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think the, the convergent threat perceptions of China is actually not a far too distant prospect. I, you know, in particular, I'd be on the lookout for any shifts in the domestic political environment in South Korea um, looking at its April 15th legislative election coming up just, you know, next week. And I think as some of the fallout in the japan Korea bilateral relationship um, can be directly attributed to the political leadership um, in those countries. And I think um, the other major variable here is obviously the United States without strong leadership and signaling of uh, U.S. commitment to, to multilateralism, I think, Japan and South Korea will likely become more entrenched in pursuing the sort of fortress strategies that we're seeing today. I mean, I think especially uh, South Korea, 
will grow more susceptible to Chinese coercion and inducement that we've seen in the past several years. So what could potentially change that dynamic? A lot of this, uh, you know, is dependent on what the United States does. And obviously, Tokyo and Seoul are looking to the administration and to Washington about next steps on both North Korea and China in sort of the post-COVID-19 world. And so I think, you know, it a lot of this uh, goes is dependent on American commitment to its allies in the region. And so I think this next step should be rooted in sort of reaffirming our longstanding commitment to the security of our allies, particularly in in terms of the near-term threat that we're seeing from North Korea, obviously with its enduring nuclear program, but also in terms of China's economic coercion, um, especially of South Korea. Let's come to today's main topic, tech cooperation among allies. So why is this important? It's important for a few reasons, Jordan. I mean, one, and I would say just taking the broader context, because today the U.S. is gradually losing its tech advantage to China for a number of reasons that we document in our new report. I mean, everything from failure to kind of invest in American R&D sufficiently to China's own parallel investments and, of course, China's uh, global acquisition of technology, including in the U.S. through every means possible, whether illegal or illegal. So in that context that the U.S. is losing its, its tech advantage, of course, most importantly, the U.S. needs to invest in itself, but there are many political hurdles to that. So at least in the near to medium term, a really key area is for the U.S. to deepen cooperation with allies because, one, they tip the scale against China. That if you look at just the size of China's economy, its population, increasingly the funds it can dedicate to technology, the U.S. really has to work with allies to ensure that it has kind of a quantitative overmatch in that sense. Also, of course, I mean, the allies have today a lot of critical technology that the U.S. is not always necessarily the leader in. And 5G, of course, is, is one example. So given the diffusion of innovation, allies bring a lot more to the table than they might have in the Cold War when the U.S. was clearly the technological leader. And then last, but definitely mm-hmm. not least, technology protection today requires a collective effort. Um, the U.S. can become a harder target to China, but if allies don't follow suit, whether it's imposing restrictions on Chinese investment in their tech sectors or export controls, uh, ultimately, China will simply go elsewhere, get what it needs, and the U.S. will put up barriers to investment for kind of with very little return uh, on that. So that is really why allies matter critically at this stage. Often think tank reports put forth opinions, but don't necessarily deliver um, information and analysis, which I haven't come across, especially as someone who reads a lot of think tank reports about a pretty narrow topic. But this one had this whole section of all these government agencies, which I'd never heard of before. So would you guys like to pick a few of your favorites that are um, involved in this overseas tech cooperation ecosystem? The U.S. government has really stepped up engagement with allies on both the innovation and technology protection fronts, um, largely in response to concerns about China, but also many of these programs and initiatives are, are long-standing efforts. And so on innovation, there's actually a, a pretty wide range of mechanisms that the United States has for collaborating with allies on a, a range of activities, including technology scouting. And so programs like the the Foreign Comparative Testing Program have actually been around since the 1980s um, and are predominantly focused on procurement. And so that's actually what we identify as a shortcoming of the program. It's it's by design focused on filling near-term needs 
rather than supporting long-term cooperation. There are also multilateral cooperative frameworks like the National Technology and Industrial Base, or NTIB, which is probably one of the more well-known mechanisms um, that brings together the United States and some of its closest allies, including Canada, uh, the UK, Australia. And then moving to the tech protection side, there are also a pretty wide range of grant consultations and multilateral regimes. The Wassenaar Arrangement is probably um, one of the most well-known and highest profile mechanisms as it, it brings together 42 um, of the world's most technologically advanced democracies, and notably a non-democracy, Russia. And so actually, we argue that this inclusivity imposes um, significant constraints to the, you know, updating control lists as technologies evolve. Over the course of our research for this project, we were able to meet with, you know, a lot of people who are involved in in a number of these different initiatives and, and agencies. And we were also able to meet with allies or people who are interfacing with these government initiatives in allied countries. And not to be like overly pessimistic, but with, with a lot of what we heard from people in, in these allied countries, for the record, we visited Norway, Japan, and Israel for research for this, for this project. They had a lot of confusion initially about navigating the process of opening up their tech to the U.S. market, if especially in the dual-use realm. Some people we met with mentioned that they were actually initially suspicious that some of these things being about you know, hunting for various IP to bring back to the U.S. and, and develop there. So I think there's like a lack of information out there on how to best navigate I imagine it's not just information. Like, this is a very tricky thing to pull off. And even domestically, you know, Ash Carter had his big DIU push, which is the one organization I had heard of that you guys profiled. But, you know, if the U.S. can't even figure out how to get small and medium-sized contracts to American firms, figuring out how to do that for, for tech companies abroad is, is it seems like an even bigger lift. Yeah, the companies that were, you know, most successful were the ones that had the good tech and were able to shrewdly navigate the process. And in an ideal world, we're really just, you know, leveraging the best technology and, and it shouldn't be a prerequisite that they're able to, you know, devote significant resources to navigating these complex processes. To, to jump in on your kind of point on how difficult it is. I think that's generally right, but honestly, a lot of it comes down to, prioritization and kind of political will within the U.S. government that ultimately, at least from what, what I've seen, I mean, if you have kind of political leaders pushing to involve allies early with the understanding that it may create kind of a slower process up front, but deliver better long-term value, you can move forward. I think that the challenge is there's an inherent tension, certainly within the Department of Defense, but more generally that if you're looking just against sort of a basic timeline and you don't have a political leader saying, got to build an allies from the outset. It's generally maybe not more effective over the long run, but it may be faster initially just to do it unilaterally. So I, I think recognizing that, uh, honestly, a lot of it's just there needs to be more focus. There are ways to involve ally companies kind of in our national security innovation base. It's more a question of kind of having the political will. So 
you know, speaking of political will, buy American is a principle which always seems to uh, run afoul of these of these sort of international procurement efforts. And just in the past few weeks, it's it's taken coronavirus to finally have some policies be loosened on this front. So, do you think there is the political will there, or what are the you know domestic American dynamics around this allied innovation push? I think there is growing appetite for it, particularly in that. Uh, I mean, if you look at defense collaboration, especially in the defense domain with some of our allies already, I mean, you create jobs in the U.S., so it's not about, it's not sort of zero sum. It's more a rising tide lifts all boats. And so I also think that the kind of competitive pressure from China will increasingly force Americans overall to think more about sort of can we develop it together as opposed to produce it and necessarily make it here. And so I would say I am optimistic over the long run. I also think that a lot of the steps that we promote, so for example, we call for amending the Buy American Act, which admittedly is, I think, still one of the harder recommendations to actually implement. But if, if the US did that, I mean, it would create a much more competitive environment for procurement, lower prices, better technology, which ultimately would help certainly the taxpayers. I'm more optimistic today than even a month earlier when we were kind of putting the final touches on this report that I think you, you may see a kind of change in how Americans think about where they get there, whether it's you know COVID nineteen supplies or kind of broader national security. One of the recommendations we have that I, I do want to highlight for you was to essentially leverage defense attaché offices and give them a kind of technology scouting mandate because you have defense attaché offices all over the world, and it would be kind of a real force multiplier because you're not going to have like ONR Global or any of the other more kind of tech scouting groups that we talk about. You can't have them in every country, but you almost have a defense attaché office in every country. So to me, and that's one way to do it. On the ally piece, I mean, the allies have a huge incentive for this type of cooperation. Part of it, of course, is market access to the United States. And part of it's also allies are really interested in plugging into each other as well. So I, I think, mm -hmm. if, if anything, the allies don't need a whole lot of convincing. They're very keen for this kind of uh, community of tech innovation and protection, uh, especially if there is a linkage where in exchange for elevating their kind of tech protection measures, they're getting better access to the U.S. That's an interesting dynamic, because on the one hand, we just spent a few minutes talking about South Korea and Japan earlier on the show. Not every ally would necessarily be super excited about sharing their fanciest stuff with, you know, pick whatever 15 countries you get engaged in this sort of activity with the U.S. So maybe you want to go a little deeper into that, Dan, about why, why you think there's this not just like country to U.S., but also like, you know, broader network effect that the allied nations would be excited about? Absolutely. I mean, for a lot of U.S. allies, there, and of course, every ally has its own technology that's proprietary or secret that it may not want to share. But overall, there's a lot that can be shared. And I mean, as kind of allies, especially there are allies that don't necessarily interact uh, a lot today. So I would highlight Japan and Israel, two countries that we did kind of deep dives on where only in very recent years have they begun to move forward with kind of increasing momentum, their kind of economic relationship, political relationship. But in a sense, the U.S. can serve as a bridge to that. And for the two, there's a lot of synergies. I mean, Japan looking for technology from Israel, Israel looking for kind of funding from Japan. And so in some ways, the U.S. can be a bridge for some of these relationships. So that I would say, I mean, is, is definitely kind of one incentive there. And ultimately, just to take a step back, I mean, I think how this kind of alliance innovation base would evolve is you're not going to have a consortium of 15 allies sharing everything, you're going to have many different types of cooperative groupings. It could be bilateral, the sure. US and one ally, it could be trilateral, minilateral. So something that looks actually not unlike 
the kind of network security architecture in the Indo-Pacific, where you don't have an Asian NATO, but you have many interlocking groups of cooperation. I know, Dan, you've been chomping at the bit to talk about uh, some of your policy recommendations. We've already gotten to the defense hashtag idea. Are there other ones that are particularly uh, near and dear to you, Christine and Josh's heart? One of the main thrusts of our recommendations is to build ally awareness and capacity, including promoting like a more broad awareness of China's actions, both in the tech protection realm and just more generally. That's definitely near and dear to my heart because I think of all the places we visited, it seemed like a lot of our interlocutors in Israel didn't have like the same threat picture that we do of China. People in Israel, by and large, view China as almost entirely an economic opportunity and not as much a security challenge. Well, maybe I'll just push back on that a little bit, Josh. I mean, like China, you know, I think I think there's a pretty reasonable argument to make that like Israel isn't all that threatened by China. I mean, like the worst case, okay, they steal some technology, but you know, I mean, is China going to be start start selling, you know, advanced weaponry to Hezbollah or something? I mean, it, it it comes back to my earlier question I posed to Dan about how incentives are different for these for these different countries, and it's not necessarily um, that everyone's going to you know see Huawei or or Sinook all in the same all in the same lens. So, you know, I think this is a this is a dynamic that like the US is going to have to manage and and not necessarily count on everyone buying the administration's line that China is necessarily or China and Chinese investment are, is necessarily something that, you know, comes at comes at great risk. No, that's definitely right. Uh, you know, as long as the powers that be in Israel don't view China as a threat, everything that they do to protect themselves against it is sort of done more or less as a favor to the United States. And yeah. I think that's a dynamic that I'd like to, that I hope changes in the future. But the other thing is that there, we did hear some concerns about the relationship between China and Iran in Israel, because obviously within Israel, Iran is seen as the major security threat there. So another one of the ideas that you, you you three have collectively put forward into the world is this idea of a, of a digital development fund. Part of the idea of getting all these allies together is to be able to push more competitive products out into the world so that the next time fi- a 5G type thing comes around, there will be a sort of NATO friendly product that is competitive with, you know, not necessarily allied countries who are considering choosing between Chinese and non-Chinese infrastructure. So I guess my question for for you all on this one is, what do you think the balance between the supply side and the demand side for technology Chinese style is? You know, my, my point being that, you know, even if the U.S. puts subsidies in place and, and has like a, you know, a, com- a competitively priced product at a at a at an equal or, or higher quality than what China is offering. If what um, the Western firms are putting out doesn't necessarily have like a authoritarian friendly feature set that checks all the boxes for, um, you know, sur- surveilling your dissidents and whatnot, will will this sort of will this sort of uh, work together from the allied uh, perspective end up making much of a difference in tipping the scales between what these third countries are going to end up choosing to invest and build their uh, ecosystems with? It's a great question. I mean, my perspective is that there certainly are a handful of countries that are either autocracies or highly liberal democracies where 
even if the U.S. or Ally product is of comparable price and value, they'll find kind of the autocratic imprint on what China's offering attractive. But I think that's a small number. I think generally when you look at the developing world in particular, uh, but even at Europe, I mean, it, it's much more about price. It's really not about kind of the kind of high-tech liberalism that China's promoting. And I mean, for example, Kenya, one country that I've personally visited, I mean, you talk to folks there, it's really about if the Chinese product is far cheaper and they're going to go with it, knowing all the kind of concerns about, of course, espionage and data privacy. So to me, pricing matters most in a majority of world markets, certainly not some, but to me, it's, it's definitely the kind of definitive piece. Part of the framing with the Digital Development Fund is not sort of building it as like forcing countries to pick a side between the US and China. We see, especially in Southeast Asia, a huge resistance to being seeing themselves as like in the center of, of this fight between US and China or competition between US and China. Instead, we want to have the Digital Development Fund be part of presenting the United States as a positive alternative rather than a side that you must choose if you sure. want to proceed. So the information domain is a really interesting space to watch because, you know, you're saying Chinese designed and marketed social media app was proliferate beyond China's borders, including in the United States with, with TikTok and, and WeChat, even beyond sort of the Chinese diaspora. And so I think in particular, thinking about how like Chinese social media apps are being used as part of uh, China's broader information operations and to advance its foreign policy aims, I think is sort of the, the next frontier of thinking about, you know, the proliferation of Chinese technology um, and the reach of Chinese tech companies. Okay, sure. So, so Christine, if this is if this is something that that worries you, should the U.S. government be, you know, subsidizing Indian nationals to use Instagram and WhatsApp uh, as opposed to TikTok? The the first step should go back to what Josh was um, just mentioning in regards to some of the recommendations we advanced in our report, and I think it really begins with raising public awareness. I think a lot of Americans, uh, even Americans, and certainly international consumers, don't understand how the Chinese Communist Party is leveraging these technologies and, and including social media apps to do things like harvest data and censor and and spread false information, including about COVID-19, as we're seeing right now. Yes, there are. there is a, a small number of countries that China is selling this kind of technology to that are already implementing it for repressive means. But what we're really concerned about it, are the countries that have weak democratic institutions or sort of on the borderline of tipping the scale towards authoritarianism that unwittingly buy these platforms and then, you know, are able to more easily slide into that sort of Chinese model of digital authoritarianism, digital repression that enables greater control over their population. So coming off that, Josh, speaking of these sort of borderline countries, 
There's one way to make procurement decisions a lot easier, which is to bribe people. You know, of course, this is illegal right now under U.S. law, but Trump a few months ago floated the idea that maybe we should consider loosening this because I think he said, like, everyone else is doing it. So if a few million dollars here and there is really what it takes to have these countries do, as you as you allude to, you know, what is probably best for their people in the long run, what's so wrong with the idea of potentially, you know, throwing a few million dollars in, in some uh, Swiss bank accounts and, you know, supporting the New York real estate market, which is, I think, something that's going to be in, in, in dire straits in the coming uh, months and years. It's in the long run, help America's and our allies' technology ecosystem. Sure. So here's my take. One, I mean, bribing people overseas to buy our products is not who we are as Americans. They're, I think at the end of the day, that's not what America should do. It's, it's against our national character. Two, I don't think we'd be effective compared to China. The United States does not have the resources like China to throw around, nor does it have the expertise at bribing officials. So I think for, for both value-based reasons and pragmatic reasons, it would be entirely counterproductive and wrong. I don't know, Dan. I mean, you know, like how much money was flowing into repressive regimes for most of the second half of the 20th century? And I have no doubt that there is like enough bribing talent within the US to sort of like figure out these things. And I would even argue that I think like, I think actually the Chinese government, you know, in their overseas bribing activities has been like exposed a lot of times and isn't necessarily quite as fluent in the ways of the world. I think finding some some experienced Exxon employees who spent a lot of time in some pretty <laughs> rough places, you know, if you gave them a little extra leash, they could they could certainly do a um uh, do a good job with 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 a little more wiggle room. Yeah, I I would respectfully disagree there. I think at the end of the day, it's not who we are, it's not our sort of area of competence either. And I mean, if you look at areas where the US whether it's been even above the table sort of pushing money out quickly like Iraq or Afghanistan, it tends not to certainly deliver the results that I think American policymakers had expected, seeing how both of those countries have gone. Well, maybe maybe this isn't maybe this isn't your line of work, but someone um, should start up the new Fletcher School minor in uh, bribing foreign <laughs> countries. I think that's you know to build up the uh, the subject matter expertise here. I think is something that um uh, is really lacking in the U.S. arsenal. Yeah, good good luck getting donations to that. Oh, easy? Are you kidding me? This is like a super easy fundraising activity. What, what corporation would not want to get into this game? Dan, earlier on, you said that coronavirus, you thought, would is increasing American appetite for doing this sort of overseas uh, collaboration on the technology front. But also, you know, we, we, we've been seeing uh, in, in some dimensions an increase in protectionism of uh, people setting up uh, different countries saying that exports on medical goods are not being allowed and just travel not um, being something that is possible around the world, I imagine, makes this sort of work a lot more difficult. So I'm curious, are there any other things that you um, would revise in your prognosis of how this uh, these trends will turn out in light of what's been happening in the world over the past few months? And for the record, we're recording on April 8th. Well, certainly we could have, in the kind of basket of shared alliance challenges, put responding to a global pandemic. Um, that would have obviously been a, a nice shared challenge to put. I think, of course, I mean, travel disruption, it hinders collaboration. Uh, I'm optimistic that at some point we will safely be able to to come back to in-person meetings and travel again. So I, I think that's kind of a temporary disruption. Overall, I think we've certainly seen the merits if there had been much closer collaboration with U.S. allies, particularly in Europe and East Asia. Early in this growing pandemic, maybe we would have prevented some of the, the spread. And so I, I would say I am optimistic that you see some kind of short-term protectionist impulses, but that ultimately the, the longer term lesson will be certainly with allies, the need to collaborate more 
so so one point I just I just like to make is I think that uh, you know we've had this long conversation about the U.S. working with its allies on technological co- cooperation and you know there's a lot of uh, you know fear of China's rise and whatnot but this one of the real advantages America has is that this is sort of this is something that's like even possible for the U.S. to try to do I mean China's quote unquote allies which are which are sort of you know pretty hazy to begin with like I don't think Pakistan or Nepal or Mongolia or Burma. Um, really have all that much um, that the PLA would like to incorporate into their into their weapon system. So as scared as everyone is at China's rise, I think it's important to put this in perspective that at least on this issue, you would much rather be sitting in in Washington and Beijing. A hundred percent, yes. So to close, reading recommendations, Asia policy or otherwise. I, my recommendation, not Asia policy, but I think instructive for the current era, is a biography of David Ben Gurion called "The Burning Ground." And oh, kind of so the key good. Insight- Key insight there is essentially he was able to kind of predict discontinuous change that the world would transform in his lifetime. And then he went forward and founded the state of Israel. And I think especially in the era of of COVID-19, we all need a bit more of that ability to kind of understand it and predict discontinuous change, which is really, really hard. We all think in trends, but not kind of ruptures. So my recommendation isn't quite related to Asia policy, but I recommend everyone listen to the album of Sam Cooke's 1963 live performance at the Harlem Square Club. The performance is honestly so electric. Um, If you dial up the music and close your eyes, you basically feel like you're sitting right there at the concert, which is an escape I think we could all use right now. I feel I can tell you about my baby right now. (laughs) I said I feel you in a mood for me to tell you about my baby right now. Sometimes me and my baby, we fuss and fight, and my baby leave home, cause things ain't right. <laughs> oh, but I get the feeling, so all alone, and I call my baby on the telephone. I finally get somebody on the telephone, and I say, who is this? Somebody said, this is the operator. I said, I don't want you, operator. I want my baby. Oh, operator. I want my baby. And finally, the operator get my baby on the telephone. And children, the minute I hear my baby say hello, something start to move. Now say I got a message for you, honey. I wanna tell you that, darling, you you sent me. That's what I wanna tell you.
listen here, baby. I want you to listen to this song right here for me. Got to tell you I feel right now. This song gonna tell you I feel. I know you've been going away from me a long time, but listen, baby, if you ever change your mind about leaving. They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS10. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.